0: Welcome to Bitcoin Macro, a pop-up podcast produced as part of the Coindesk Invest New York conference in November. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly. Both the podcast and the event explore the intersection of Bitcoin and the global macro economy with perspectives from some of the leading thinkers in finance, crypto and beyond. Welcome again to our pop-up podcast around Bitcoin in the world today. Today, I'm joined by Ombre Subran from Keiko. Uh Ombre, on peut faire ça en français, we could do it in <laughs> French, but uh, I'd say today, uh, to make sure that our audience is as wide as possible, we'll keep it all in English. So welcome from Paris.
1: Thanks, Alain. Thank you very much.
0: So great to have you here, and you'll be the last person that we'll be recording around this series of, of speakers and contributors to our, our session here, and you'll be the first uh, international person, so the first person to bring an international flair to the Bitcoin in the World uh, podcast. Uh, we've had mostly Americans until now. I suppose Meltem can, can count as a, uh, as a non-American, but uh, she is also American, so we're not going to go that far. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. I'm uh, blessed. <laughs> Well, we're, we're, we're blessed and happy to have you. Uh, so let's jump right in, Ombre. Right now, of course, we've seen a few big news items around a sort of macro turbulations. A lot of people are talking about it. Definitely changes going on in the global economy, particularly with the American-Chinese trade war. Um, Of course, all of the uh, difficulties the European banks are having. And within all this context, of course, you work uh, in the Bitcoin world. How do you see Bitcoin behaving in this environment? Are you seeing it really transcending what had been something interesting for tech folks to becoming a true macro asset?
1: Yeah, um, so I think, I think it's a great question and it's true, um, you know, how seeing how all the different narratives for Bitcoins uh, have evolved over time. I think it's really interesting to look at that now from a, from a more macro perspective and say we're, we're seeing more and more institutional drive and institutional demand for Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency world at a larger mm-hmm. spectrum, but within the context of Bitcoin. So let's, I think, take a step back and say, OK, but what is a macro asset? So macro assets are assets such as it can be indices, rates, FX, sovereign bonds, things that are mostly driven by geopolitical and macroeconomic factors. And they generally move with large market moves in a relatively predictable manner. So they have a constant correlation uh, with typical risk assets. Um, so if we look at, we take that and we say, okay, now what is, what is Bitcoin? Initially, it's interesting because it was created as a, as a more technical system, as a technical solution. Um, however, the original context in which it was created was during a quite terrible economic downturn, just after the subprime mortgage crisis, which has triggered, you know, bank bailouts and had shaken financial markets. So at the time, it was really meant to become an alternative to the financial system that created its own crisis in some way. So I think it's interesting because we say it has evolved from the original peer-to-peer electronic cash system into a financial asset, but it was originally conceived as a reaction to that financial system. So it has definitely evolved over the past 10 years. And you know, when I, when I talk to investors and people that are trying to put Bitcoin in a box, I think it's interesting. It's like this giant disco ball that is spinning. And every time you say, okay, it's a currency and you try to put on it a model or a valuation framework on top of it, it just doesn't work. And then you say, okay, actually it's technology. And then you look at it again through a specific lens and it doesn't work again. Okay, is it a commodity? And and there's like, it keeps changing and shifting. So the question is, if we look at Bitcoin from a financial asset perspective, um, I think it ha- it's important to have uh, sizes and figures in mind because it has been thought as an alternative to a financial system that was somehow broken, so we could say that it is a decorrelated macro asset. However, it's it's still way too small. Even if it's big from a from a you know where we came from, it, it grew incredibly fast in ten years. However, it's still quite small. So we're talking about a market cap of 170 uh, billion. Whereas gold, and I've been trying to look up actually the most recent market cap of gold. I found everything from five to 11 trillions. But mm-hmm. we're talking mm-hmm. about significant difference in orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Same thing with traded volume, right? We're talking about 5 billion uh, over the past 24 hours. And gold is somewhere around two hundred and fifty billions. So we're, we're still talking about significant difference order of magnitudes. And if Bitcoin were to be a true macro asset, as in, you know, it can be used as a hedged or as a de-risk for, for volatility in the traditional system or economic crisis, well, it's, it's still too small to actually handle that, I believe.
0: So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the gold comparison. For Invest, we were trying to mount a debate, let's say, uh, for, for the event next week uh, in November 12th. Uh, and we were we we're going to say you know you, you heard anywhere between I think you said six trillion to twelve eleven trillion yeah end, so exactly. eleven trillion so uh, you know I've sort of settled on the eight trillion and we had actually written the title of uh you know the race to nine trillion you know who's going to be first Bitcoin <laughs> or uh, Bitcoin or gold to sort of frame it you know uh, because you know if 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 Bitcoin continues to behave this way perhaps it grows much faster yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'm glad you also brought up that point uh, about, you know, m- making sure that everyone understands the size of this market currently, because if Bitcoin is going to be this, you know, uncorrelated, let's say, digital jurisdiction gold that that allows uh, something that isn't a nation state to have the attributes that could trade, you know, without the mismanagement or perhaps decisions that are made politically, that it could actually grow in this manner and, and become something totally different. But but we're not there yet, is what you're saying. We're not there yet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something really interesting when you think about it as a financial asset or as of gold, is that, like, indeed, Bitcoin is not uh, directly subject to interest rates or to any kind of currency debasement. It's, not, it's, it's decentralized, so thereby it's not dictated by a specific government. And you cannot have a political force that comes in and creates market volatility. So in some way, it is, you know, appealing to investors because of this decentralized aspects. Um, on the other hand, it, you know, that makes it closer to gold. However, I think we very often, when we talk about sizes and when we talk about demand on, the, on Bitcoin, we forget to think uh, about supply. And we're, we're today at 18 million Bitcoin out of a total of 21 million. Um, you know, there's going to be the Bitcoin halving in a couple of times. This, this really makes Bitcoin unique in terms of uh, financial assets and i think it's the first um financial asset for which after a point supply is actually likely to decrease we will you know we already say that i don't know four out of the 18 million bitcoin are actually lost lost somewhere on the blockchain somewhere because people have lost their, their keys for you know xyz reason so supply and and the fact that it's likely to start decreasing after a point is is things that we don't really um mention when we think about it as a macro asset price can increase which you know will increase the market cap because it's divisible and because it's uh, you could fraction bitcoin all the way to i think the power of 9 um mm-hmm. you you can actually create value significantly but there's this supply and this um and this decreasing supply issue that i find interesting
0: and and you mentioned earlier uh, about you know is it a currency and and sort of people going back and forth trying to define it and and putting that next to what you mentioned about its size, you know a lot of these definitions come from basically looking in the mirror. So we've we've seen what currencies are over the past couple of years. We look in the mirror and we say, well, it's got to be exactly like that. It's got to be like the U.S. dollar or the euro or the yen. Mm. Um, what would you say if if you know we're, we're looking at Bitcoin now because it's so small? it hasn't really been able to affect the definition of a currency. Is there a possibility that as it grows, could you see a time when it actually makes us rethink and and redefine what some of these instruments are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I actually really think that it it has already started to redefine the way we think of money in general. Like The idea that now there is this permissionless system that enables me to send a, a unit of account, effectively Bitcoin, to whoever I want, whenever I want at a relatively low fee, is redefining the way we think about money. That's, that's, I think, definitely, um, definitely the case already. But, but indeed, you know, we really moved from the original kind of peer to peer. Um, electronic cash system, which is the original white paper presented by Satoshi eleven years ago now. Then it became this digital money narrative or this magic internet money. Um, but today uh, it's it's rarely seen as a cash system. Um, there's been initiative of course like the like network in order to kind of improve efficiency and use cases for Bitcoin as a currency, but it, it's still very little volume and it's not really seen today as money anymore. Um, then it became this private and anonymous currency. Um, all those things were from a time where institutional interest was barely existent. Um, actually, at the time where it was seen as this private and anonymous currency, uh, I was working in banking at the, point at the time, and we started to raise the idea that Bitcoin was something interesting to look at, and you know, they were completely, completely reluctant to have anything to do mm-hmm. with Bitcoin. So institutional interest was not there yet. Um, and then the ICO craze happened. And when that happened, it started to raise interest, both from like the public um, audience, investors that wanted to make profits and also VCs. I mean, it started to attract. Because it became big enough in size, it started to attract also interest from the more VC investor space mm-hmm. initially, because that was disrupting
0: R- Larger risk tolerance. And, and yeah, larger
1: stuff. risk. Absolutely. And they're financing their projects, right? A lot of projects mm-hmm. that, I mean, a lot of them were unfortunately scammy, but there's also a lot of great projects that actually raised funding and way more that would have raised playing the VC game. And today, four years down the road, three or four years after their ICO, they're still you know, not profitable, but fully independent and autonomous. Mm-hmm. And they've grown in very different ways. I think it created new forms of startups that wouldn't have existed without the the, the ICO.
0: Um, yeah, separating the quality for a minute, just the, the, the idea that it could happen to begin with was uh, enough to, to make history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, mm-hmm. so that's, I guess, when it started having some form of mainstream adoption or if not adoption, a more mainstream uh, interest and institutional interest then really started um, interestingly not with the money part but with the blockchain not crypto trend we have a new way to create these programmable shared decentralized databases and that was something that again coming from 10 years of banking I've heard a lot at some point it was bitcoin was a word you were not really supposed to pronounce but you know distributed ledger and distributed database was, was really sexy and I guess that you know Started justifying more traditional interests for Bitcoin in some way, like like they liked it or not, but that
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: justified that they could allow some resources into understanding that.
0: Yeah, and, and now it's starting to be called the global hegemonic synthetic currency. I guess is the new uh, the new the new tagline we're going with.
1: Exactly, nope. and so the, <laughs> that's ex- exactly that. So the, the last actually, the like now the institutional interest. Is really more because we're looking at it, and that's the point of this conversation, from a more, oh, it's actually an uncorrelated financial asset. It's a new financial asset. It's a you know censorship resistant digital gold. We're not so sure what type of financial asset it is, but we know that it's decorrelated from traditional markets. And so you know it's interesting. We can start applying some trading strategies, we can start leverage, we can start doing different things on that asset that will generate returns. That's one part. And the other part is the reserve, right? It's a it's a it's a w- way to protect uh, to de-risk from other types of financial assets.
0: So so moving on to to a more specific definition or or type of behavior that we're seeing from Bitcoin today, but still definitely related to uh, being uncorrelated and and perhaps not victim of some of the political decisions jurisdictions are making. So you're in Europe. You've definitely got your own sort of political hot potato right now with Brexit and and what that could mean. Do you expect or have you seen Bitcoin, even within those two sophisticated economies of of France and and England, behaving as a safe haven asset? Of course, when the Brexit vote first happened, we saw Bitcoin get a price bump back in 2016, and it was definitely a, a correlation there. Do you see anyone thinking along those lines in Europe? Do you see anyone worried about the euro and using Bitcoin or is it just not on anyone's radar right now in Paris and anywhere you'd see it acting as a a safe haven is, you know, still in the Venezuelas of the world?
1: Yeah, so I I, I think you're spot on on the the, you raised Venezuela and I was going to get there. I think it's 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 definitely seen as a safe asset in jurisdictions where there is much more political and economic uncertainty so when you have you know high economic volatility and i was going to come up with venezuela and argentina and even even hong kong recently right hong kong is generally one of the most stable and one of the best places to to live from an economic standpoint because it's going through uh, political dysfunctions, and there's all these mass protests. Uh, actually, if you look interestingly on the volumes on local Bitcoin, which is a kind of peer-to-peer mm-hmm. exchange, uh, volumes have significantly increased in all those countries. So I guess, and it's also, if you look back at the history in the early days of Bitcoin, I guess it was 2013, 2014. At the time, it was Ecuador and all these like more Central American countries that were also driving mm-hmm. um, adoption. So from a safe haven perspective, I guess the question is, you know, where do you go and hide where you don't know where else to go? Like when really you're thinking I don't trust the current status quo anymore, where do I go? And the question is, is Bitcoin a, a good a good place for that? So there's you know, when things go wrong, there's only a limited number of things that you can do and a number of assets that are completely isolated from the rest of the system. And it is interesting in that way. I I, I don't think at that point that People have a you know, deep mistrust in the euro, um, or mm-hmm. at least it's not a, a, a theme yet. Um, however, I read something that I, was, I thought was really cool on Huddlers, And yeah. if you look at more of the on-chain data stuff, you mm-hmm. see that people mm-hmm. that have been holding, you have Bitcoins that have been sitting on wallets, and even through the like year-to-date highs of this year mm-hmm. and the even all-time highs of the past years, Uh, You have people that haven't done or sold out or done anything over the past two years and five years, meaning that those people like there's two things. There's foregoing what you already have to invest in Bitcoin or to hide in Bitcoin. And there is already having Bitcoin and not wanting to get out of it. Right. And and not Mm -hmm. wanting to actually take that existing gain, which is already on the table. If you've been holding for five years, you definitely make profits. However, people are huddling. Right. So. Mm -hmm. There's this idea. I don't think in Europe people are running away from the euro to invest in crypto because they see it as a safe haven yet. Um, mm-hmm. It might come to there if there's more political uncertainty. Um, however, you definitely see that in in the more already shaken economies that you know it's it's a way to avoid um, to avoid your government having control of your of your own wealth, right?
0: Yeah, I, I did notice on local bitcoins. I haven't checked recently, but over the summer in Hong Kong, like you were mentioning, uh, it was trading at about $100 premium. Uh, yeah, which which meant the appetite certainly was there for 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 whatever reason, but there was a, there was an appetite for sure.
1: Absolutely. that's that's really interesting. When you look at prices across different markets, um, you know, we, we cover like 100 exchanges, so there's even smaller local markets and Filipino markets, mm-hmm. Mexican markets. you really see price difference depending on what, what is happening in the country. I think there was a one percent price difference in uh, in in Hong Kong and in China mm-hmm. recently. Which mm-hmm. I mean, one percent might seem small, but you know, as you said, when you put it, especially over eighty mm-hmm. over eight thousand dollars, it's actually mm-hmm. it's actually eighty dollars. It's a lot of money. On on the safe haven thing, though, it, there's also a still, even though it's it's much more, you know, Bitcoin is now in, I don't want to say everybody's mind, but close. Um, however, there's still a lot of misunderstanding of what it is, and I and one of the things I was hearing all the time when I was in the banking world was okay, but. You know, this Bitcoin thing, it doesn't have any intrinsic value. And this is something to which I obviously completely disagree. And, you know, my response to that was, you know, how, how, do, how can you say that having a system that enables permissionless, transparent, and decentralized and secure way to digitally transfer ownership, like just that system and the fact that it works and that it has been working for 10 years has value. And that's the intrinsic value in my eyes. But, but this is something because there are so many different narratives and so many misunderstanding. You know, it, if you have a, an exchange that gets hacked and people understand that Bitcoin was hacked, there's still too many mm-hmm. misunderstanding, which mm-hmm. I guess prevents people seeing Bitcoin as a safe haven asset just because you just don't know what you're getting into. It's still muddy waters for most
0: people. They, they think of Bitcoin exposure itself as risky, not as a, as a um, hedge against jurisdictional risk.
1: Yeah, exactly. They just, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of, I don't really know how this thing works. And mm-hmm. so I'm afraid. And the reason they're afraid is also because they're in control, right? It's the mm-hmm. first time that, even if you don't understand, I'm sure you just take the, you know, random Joe in the street does not necessarily understand how um, the central bank work and how even their own bank work, how... A, the financial system is complex, right? But because you mm-hmm. have intermediaries and you have people that are theoretically accountable for your money, it's not as scary. And also it's been working forever and that's the way they grew up. So it's it's not the same telling them, you know, you have this new system that is transforming the way we represent ownership and the way we store value. It means that you have, you know, power back to the individuals. We're challenging many things. And because they don't understand it, they just don't want to go there.
0: Mm-hmm. And w- when you had mentioned HODL waves, uh, of course, Hoddle waves are a HODLing and then the data that goes along with analyzing HODLing, which is the HODL waves. Can you really like define the time preference or the trade that's happening? So you go back to the meltdown, for example, the people that made that, that bet, they bet against U.S. housing. Um, it was hard for them to, to hold in and have conviction on that trade through all of the FUD and the people saying, you know, the U.S. housing is never going to go down. What are you doing making this bad? And, of course, if you, you know, read The Big Short and, and, and all these other analysts uh, who, who told the history of what happened then, of course, a lot of people sort of chickened out. They got weak knees yeah. and split. Um, so when we look at the HODL waves, does it really tell you that people do believe that this safe haven behavior is bound to happen, or or they're at least hedging that it could happen, and this is the instrument to use to avoid it happening in the future.
1: So it, it's it's a it's a great question, and I think it's 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 already a very good signal to know that people who have made significant gains are not uh, interested in exiting that system, right? So that's the mm-hmm. first thing. Then the second mm-hmm. thing is what would show an actual traction on the safe haven. Uh, narrative is if you had a lot of new inflows of people who were actually, you know, buying in and holding. And mm-hmm. the truth is that today Bitcoin is still a very speculative asset and a lot of the volume that we're seeing are short term traders. That's no question. Mm-hmm. However, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why people are actually, you know, call it betting or call it speculating. The reason people speculate on that is, you know, hopefully they speculate on the fact that it will become a safe haven asset. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's really the, you know, if we go, if we think about a, if a recession happened tomorrow, um, is the system sturdy enough yet to really be a safe haven and really Mm -hmm. have an inflow, significant inflow of capital into the Bitcoin ecosystem and then, you know, hold through that? That's a question of the maturity of the of the Bitcoin space as of now. However, people are trading it also because they think that it will increase, right? And if they think that mm-hmm. it will, and they think that they're gonna profit, it's because they're hoping that it will become a macro asset or a safe hub.
0: So, so you know, the 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 next question I had, and you brought up recession, was what does happen to Bitcoin in a recession? And what you're saying is, uh, there's the possibility, and many people believe that it will be uncorrelated and will behave differently and will be a hedge against a recession. That's sort of out there.
1: Yeah, so that's that's a bit trickier, I guess. And that really, that mm-hmm. goes back to what I said about the maturity. It's, mm-hmm. it's in general, um, you know, from an asset management perspective, you, you see historically that in big crisis, in the you know, 07, 08 crisis, generally correlations just jump to one when things really go sour Mm -hmm. uh, because Mm -hmm. people are just you know trying to save whatever they can so the question here is is it going to be the same for bitcoin and of course all of the more blockchain community and believers of which you know we are part of would say that a recession would benefit bitcoin but the truth Mm -hmm. is really when there's a crisis and when investors want to lower their risks Bitcoin is still considered a risky asset. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. We, we, mm-hmm. we can believe whatever we want. It's still, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a risky asset, and it's about trust. And Bitcoin is all about trust, right? The the value of mm-hmm. the of the ledger holds because there's this consensus mechanism, and everybody agrees to trust the ledger. And so mm-hmm. we can just try to imagine some scenarios, right? If there's a crisis, and investors are looking to move. Uh, their money and they're considering Bitcoin. And at that point, you know, the system is overloaded, transaction fees skyrocket. Everybody tries to protect their own interests. Miner also will take transactions that have higher transaction fees. And so there's kind of a a problem that happens at that point or a bottleneck into I want to actually get my money into the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. Um, so the cryptocurrency infrastructure is still being built. And so, is, would it support that? Would you know how would the world react to so transaction fees skyrocketing? People saying, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's actually really volatile. The price of the transaction we thought it was low, but actually it's not. It's a crisis, so volatility will increase. How do people react, right?" Mm-hmm. And second thing is, in that context, if everybody gets you know scared and you have a main cryptocurrency player um, that either became rogue or just you know, goes bankrupt or what does happen? Mm-hmm. What if there is a bank run? And at that point, everybody tries to protect their Bitcoins and everybody withdraws all of their currencies that is currently in exchanges. Because exchanges mm-hmm. are helping a lot in the mainstream adoption by providing a lot of services and they're increasing their um, custody services. They're more and more secure. But still, I doubt that tomorrow, if I go and withdraw every single penny from... I don't want to name exchanges, but, but you know, if you just... If everybody... Mm-hmm try to withdraw their funds, that's a bank, that's a modern or a crypto version of a bank run. What happens mm-hmm. then? And what if if that happens? Because people just try to protect their coins. One of the big exchanges just goes bust. And then it mm-hmm. creates a complete, you know, shattering in the general trust in the mm-hmm. ecosystem. And trust is what was the, you know, underpinning strength of that network. So in mm-hmm. that case, you know, what happens? And interestingly, I, uh, If you look at the the last 10 years, the best environment um, for Bitcoin, and it's the same for most risky assets, is one where you have relatively declining market volatility, you have monetary policies that are quite accommodative, and you have low return, low economic growth. And in that sense, it makes relatively risky assets more interesting. Uh, But in a real crisis, honestly, at that stage, I don't think the, the the Bitcoin space is mature enough to really really handle a global economic downturn of the um, amplitude of what we've seen ten years mm-hmm.
0: ago. The, the the sophistication of the platform isn't quite there yet,
1: and the irrationality of the players, right? Because that means mm-hmm. all the like super short-term traders, you know, nothing would like if transaction fees start skyrocketing, and mm-hmm. and it, it, there's this kind of idea that people will you know, risk off and see what happens. But that means a lot less volume. And if you have a lot less volume, well, you have order books that are completely depleted. Everybody, let's say, wants to buy Bitcoin. Okay, well, then you have a huge buy pressure on the order books and there's no market. Nobody wants to sell. How, how does that work? In a market that weighs 170 billion of market cap, and actually, you know, the actual volume is much smaller. How, what, what does happen if everybody wants to buy and there's no risk takers and there's nobody on the, on the other side you have the, the order book that's going to be completely imbalanced. It's going to widen the, uh, the spreads, and you know people will end up buying at absurd prices. So you'll end up having takers, but it will completely shake the system. And I and I just don't know if it's if it can absorb a, a, a lasting crisis.
0: So you know you've mentioned a lot about the sophistication of the users. You've mentioned that you know there there is a certain growing risk tolerance. The, the types of people buying are are changing. What have you seen in Paris dealing with this sophisticated market over the past, let's say, six months? Have you seen a change in their opinion around Bitcoin or is it pretty much just the same narrative and and not much has happened in the past little while? There's
1: definitely much, much more tolerance, much more understanding and also much more willingness to allocate resources and spend time to, you know, to capture value in that ecosystem. I, I was yesterday in, in Stuttgart in Germany, where all the um, you know, the German exchanges are really looking at that. Um, in Switzerland, there's a lot of initiatives by mainstream players. I'm talking about you know the, the Swiss Digital Exchange is launching a security mm-hmm. token platform. Stuttgart Borsa is launching a trading platform where people can buy and sell crypto assets. So there's really, a a I think, a genuine willingness to both regulate and accept and understand and also to support mm-hmm. the developments there uh, from a more European regulation, I think they're seeing a lot of interest as well in the, you know, more in essence. And I'm stepping just one second away from Bitcoin here, but on all the the benefits of blockchain when it comes to, you know, um, disintermediate, disintermediating the uh, financing for SMEs, for example. So there's definitely the the blockchain, not Bitcoin, narrative at some points helped kind of go past specific limitations Mm -hmm. that were um, kind of old ghosts from the Bitcoin is a way to finance the drug, you know, the drug Mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, There there was those like mental blockages um, Mm -hmm. where institutional players saw Bitcoin as something they didn't want to have anything to do with. And then they realize, oh, blockchain is actually wonderful, and now they're going back to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. saying Bitcoin mm-hmm. actually is a new asset class.
0: Um, so similar to what we're seeing with Libra and Facebook.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would argue that Libra is not really a, a cryptocurrency. I guess that's maybe not the subject for, for sure. now. But but it's it's yeah, you're right. It's exactly that. It's bringing mm-hmm. it's bringing mainstream adoption to to blockchain. Why is blockchain? Why is it relevant mm-hmm. and important? And then once people have like accepted that blockchain actually is wonderful and important, Bitcoin is, you know, the best expression of blockchain. And Mm -hmm. so then you go back to Bitcoin, but it's this kind of acceptance phase that people need to go through. And I I guess that's what's happening now with Libra, it's what's happening Mm -hmm. with the Chinese government.
0: So uh, now you're with what you do at Kaiko. it's really a a data focused company. Can you tell me a bit about a data point or a way of seeing data recently that's got you really excited and and has uh, brought certain clarity to you and and you think is useful for uh, the ecosystem?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's actually something I'm going to present next week uh, at Consensus uh, Invest in New York. But one of the things, so at Keiko, we only do market data. So we monitor in real time, and we've been doing that since 2013, uh, price and volume on exchanges. so we look at every single order that is placed on markets and we look at every single transaction that is generated from a buy order and a sell order matching on an exchange. So recently mm-hmm. we've, been, we've been looking more and more into order book data and mm-hmm. order books in some way you know, represent the health, the strength and the structure of the markets. That's what I meant earlier. If everybody starts deciding that they want to transform all their financial wealth in Bitcoin and we end up with a completely unbalanced Order book because you'll have huge amounts of buy order and then no demand to to uh, absorb that. So we've been looking at that for two reasons. One of them because it reflects the state of the market today, and second because if you look at the way order books have evolved historically, you also see how the markets become more and more sophisticated. And for that, uh, we're looking at two different um, and like data points. One of them is the market depth, and the way we define market depth is you know, how many Bitcoins are placed on the buy side and on the sell side uh, for each markets and uh, by, by markets, I mean for each different exchange. And what actually is the volume that is there, that is at stake? How, how many Bitcoins are people willing to buy and sell? And this is something we can see growing and I'll, I'll show this next week. And the other mm-hmm. one is slippage. Slippage is really interesting, especially for investors who want to backtest the strategy, It's it's their free trade cost curve. It it means what is, you know, how much percentage change am I going to get in my execution price, depending on the different order sizes that I could place um, on percentage of the prevailing price. As in, you know, if I want to execute a 100,000 order, how much is it going to cost? If I want to execute a 500,000 order, how much is it going to cost? And we see that slippage these days are incredibly low. It goes down to two bips on some of the largest U.S. exchanges for Bitcoin markets. So Bitcoin is by far the most efficient market. Slippage on Bitcoin can go down to one to two bips, whereas it's mm-hmm. uh, somewhere between five and ten bips for Ethereum, for example, just as a mm-hmm.
0: horizon point. So, so the the buyers themselves are they, they, there's a lot of price discovery, and they know if they're getting a deal or not.
1: Absolutely. So, price discovery is super efficient. Spreads are very tight. We even see some markets where you have crosses, where you know there's so much buy and sell demand that people you know place orders above or below market price, depending on if they're buying or selling. So, looking at uh, order book data, you know, shows very, very uh, exciting insights to understand the space and to just monitor it in real time. Right. You can see exchanges. And by exchanges, I mean just markets on Bitcoin becoming more and more efficient just because there's more and more price takers and price sellers on each side.
0: Interesting stuff. Uh, Interesting insights into the buyers and sellers and the market in general. So if you'd like to hear more of this type of content, you'll hear plenty of it next week, November 12th in New York City, where Ombre will give a more in-depth presentation on this material. Thanks again for listening and uh, look out for our next pop-up podcast coming sometime in the next month. Enjoyed this episode? I'd like to personally invite you to come to Invest New York in November. The event features not only the speaker you just heard, but an array of other amazing thinkers. Visit coindesk.com and click events or simply follow the link in the description. Thanks for listening and see you in New York City.